that it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't have some derivative of the name of God in it. But the name isn't mentioned anywhere. Yet, as you look through this story, you're going to see how it actually ties into your own personal story. I want to help you learn the story of Esther, so I'm going to familiarize you with five of the main characters, and I'm going to use playing cards to do this. Now, when I was growing up, my mother and my grandmother forbid these in the home, and my brother and I actually went out and bought two sheets of bristleboard and made a deck of cards, and we could have gone and just bought them, but it felt more bad to actually make them ourselves and then try to shuffle a deck of cards like this. So we're going to use, first of all, we have a king in our story. And the king of clubs represents the king whose name is Xerxes. And then we have a queen, and actually there are a couple of queens. So the queen of diamonds represents Vashti, and the queen of hearts represents Esther. And then there's a joker, and it's not because this guy is so funny, he's not funny at all, but it's because Haman is constantly joking, making fun, and harassing the Jewish people. And then we have our ace in the hole, and this guy comes through in a mighty way, and this character's name is Mordecai. Now last week, we learned how 50,000 Jews had been taken from Babylon back home to Jerusalem and Judea. But many were left behind. So what we're looking at today is the story of those that were left behind. The ones that didn't get to go back home and rebuild the temple. And now, Xerxes is the king. It's no longer Babylon. It's under the power of Persia. And you are going to sense God's presence everywhere. You're going to see his hand involved throughout this story, even though his name isn't mentioned. And the main plot through all of this is God trying to save the nation of Israel by working through the people that he has in this story. And you're going to be amazed at how he works in the lives of these individuals in order to fulfill his purpose. Now, King Xerxes reigned in Persia from 485 to 465 B.C. And just look at this map, and it shows you how big an area he controlled all the way from India over to the Mediterranean Sea, even a portion of Egypt. So that's all of modern-day Israel, Palestine, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. That's how big an area he was in control of. And he wanted to impress his followers, so he threw this big party. He was going to raise some money for some war efforts he was involved in and just impress people. That's what he liked to do. So this party went on, catch this, for 180 days. And at the end of the 180 days, he says, you know what, let's go for another week. So that's what they do. And then on the last day, we pick up in Esther chapter 1, verse 10. By the seventh day, which is really the 187th day, King Xerxes was feeling happy because of so much wine. And that's probably the understatement of the century. And he asked his seven personal servants to bring Queen Vashti to him. The king wanted her to wear her crown and let his people and his officials see how beautiful she was. The king's servants told Queen Vashti what he had said, but she refused to go to him, and this made him terribly angry. So we are happy that Vashti has some convictions here, but what 
she has done has been a slap in the face to the king. It's been an embarrassment to him. And it was something that the queen just didn't do. So his advisors come up to him and they say, look, you're going to have to do something here. You're going to have to save face because all of Persia is watching to see what you're going to do. Now, if this guy was a real man, he would have stepped up to his wife and he would have apologized for asking her to come in and just stand in front of those men like that. But instead, he decides he's going to depose her as queen and banish her from the kingdom. So the king has lost his queen. And then after four years, Xerxes realizes he made a mistake. And a lot of people make bad decisions when they're drunk. And he made one of those as well. And during those four years, the Greeks had come in a couple of times and defeated them in battle. He's depressed. He's lonely. And his harem just isn't doing it. He would like to have a wife. So then his wise guys come up with a plan, and they say, well, why don't you hold a kingdom-wide beauty pageant, and then you can pick the most beautiful young woman, and she will become your queen. Now, isn't that the type of plan that a group of male advisors would come up with? And it, it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I'm sure they were all there, and, and I'd love to be a part of the judging team. We'll help you out on this there, old king. So then in Esther chapter 2, verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So Mordecai has come through for Esther. He raised her. She was going to be an orphan. And now he's saying, okay, here's your chance to come through in the clutch here. And at first she is hesitant, but he continues to push her a little bit, and before long she agrees to be a part of this pageant. And she catches the attention of the judges, and she moves very quickly through the stages of it. And But before she gets to appear before King Xerxes, she has to go through 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months. Now you think your wife takes a long time to get ready in the morning. But she had a 12-month extreme makeover. And then we pick up in verse 10. Mordecai had instructed Esther to keep her Jewish heritage a secret, and she told no one. Still, her cousin worried about her. Now that is very important to note, because it tells us that Esther isn't going to reveal her nationality to anyone. And then after the 12 months are over, she appears before King Xerxes, and she is chosen as the most beautiful and desirable virgin in the whole country. He marries her, and they have this big celebration. He declares it a national holiday. And still, he has no idea that she's a Jew. Now, obviously, they didn't go through the same premarital counseling program that I used with couples that I married. Because right at the start, it talks about your nationality. So they didn't do any of that. And soon after this, the Bible tells us that Mordecai is out by the city gates, and he hears two of the king's guards actually cooking up a plan to assassinate the king. So he goes to Esther, and says, Esther, you've got to tell the officials. So Esther goes to the king's guard, basically, and tells 
tells them what has happened. She then hears that they go out and they investigate a little bit and they find, sure enough, it's true. There is a plot against the king. So the security for the king, they kill these guys who were coming up with this assassination plan. And at that time, with the Persians, death was by impalement on a pole. So that's what they would have done with the guys who were cooking up that plan. And then the Bible says, they wrote Mordecai's name in the king's annals so that someday he could be recognized and honored. But sometime after this, Xerxes realizes that he needs some help with the administration of this kingdom. So he finds this guy by the name of Haman, and he promotes him above all the other nobles, and he makes him basically a prime minister. And he's second in command in this country, the chief advisor to the king. And oftentimes, when people are elevated like that, you start to see their true nature. It, it shines through every time. And for him, it's his ego. It's his pride. Because he's walking along the street, and everyone that he meets, he makes them bow down before him and just worship and honor him. And everyone was doing that because of his position, because of the fear of what would happen to them, except for one guy, Mordecai. And there were a couple of reasons why Mordecai didn't want to do this. First of all, Mordecai was a true Jew, and he wasn't going to bow before anybody other than the one true God. And the second reason is that because this guy, Haman, was a descendant of Agag, and that's a hard name to say, uh, an Amalekite, and the Amalekites were hated enemies of the Jews, so there was no way that he was going to bow before this guy. Haman is just furious because Mordecai won't do this. So he's determined that he's going to kill Mordecai for a lack of respect. But he doesn't stop with Mordecai. So now we skip along to chapter 3, verse 6. And when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he knew that killing only Mordecai was not enough. Every Jew in the whole kingdom had to be killed. So this guy is... The, a bona fide racist. And he develops a plan, and he takes it to King Xerxes, and he says, King, I've got a proposal for you. It's going to mean a lot of money for you in the king's registry, but there's a group of people in our country that really don't belong here. And these people shouldn't be here in the first place. They're not the type of people that we want in our kingdom. And finally, the king relents, and he says, well, okay, Haman, if you think they don't belong in our country, then okay, go ahead and get rid of them. But I don't need your money. Just keep that for yourself. So Haman puts the plan together. He comes up with the day when all the Jews are going to be exterminated. And he goes a little further. He actually goes over to the king with the plan, and he has the king place his signet ring upon it. That signified that this plan was God's plan, and nobody could stop it. It couldn't be changed. Now just imagine if you're a Jew hearing this. You're thinking, okay, that God has abandoned us here. But He hasn't. And it's the same for us. That He keeps watching over us no matter what's going on in our lives. Even if things take a sudden turn for the worst, like they have for the Jews here in this story. He's there. He doesn't abandon us. 
Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you. I will always be by your side. So remember that, no matter what's happening in your life. So God's upper story that he's unveiling with the Jews, his followers, is what we've just looked at. But in the lower story, the situation is incredibly bleak. And the next verses show us how much hatred Haman actually had for this race of people. So now we're down in verse 13. Messengers were sent out to all the royal provinces with the official law giving the order to kill, excuse me, destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. So he's going to kill them three times if he has to. And they were to kill everyone, including women and children, young and old, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of the Adar. And they were free to take everything the Jews owned. An official copy of the king's order was to be issued to every province and read publicly, so that the people could get ready for that day. And then look at the next verse. The messengers were quickly dispatched by order of the king. Then the decree was publicly proclaimed in the citadel of Susa. As the king and Haman relaxed and drank wine, the city of Susa was thrown into chaos. So Mordecai hears about this plot first, and he wears sackcloth, and he goes into mourning. But after a period of mourning, he starts to try and contact his cousin Esther, so that, and try to persuade her to save the Jews, her people. So he sends her a letter, and in that letter, he pleads with her to go to the king and plead this case. But Esther sends back a message, and she says, You don't understand, Mordecai, but there's a problem. Things have changed around here. The king hasn't summoned me in over 30 days. And I know you're aware of the law that says if I go, even the wife of the king, even if I go before the king, and he isn't interested in seeing me at that time, it could mean my death. And you've already heard about what happened to a queen who showed disrespect in the past. And I love the way Mordecai responds here in chapter 4, verse 13. Tell Esther, don't be fooled. Just because you are living inside the king's palace doesn't mean that you, out of all the Jews, will escape the carnage. You must go before your king. If you stay silent during this time, deliverance for the Jews will come from somewhere. But you, my child, and all of your father's family will die. And who knows, perhaps you have been made queen for such a time as this. So Esther is really feeling the pressure as this plot, plot unfolds. Does God want to use her to play some big role? And Mordecai lays it on the line. He says, now is the time that we need you, Esther. So we've all been there, haven't we? The college professor is making fun of the fact that you believe that there was a God who created the universe. Or maybe it's your boss who asks you to do something unethical in order to improve the financial status of his company. Or maybe a business associate, and you've just shared with that person about some of the marital struggles that you're having, and then he proceeds to flirt with you even more than usual. Or your alarm goes off, and you want to spend that time with God, but you're so tired, you're thinking, oh, I can just rest now and, and spend that time in prayer and devotion with him later. In these moments of truth, what are you going to do? Are you going to take a stand? Are you going to do what is right? 
So Esther, he's basically saying, this is no accident for you to be at this place at this time. God wants to use you. He wants to use your influence to intercede for his people. You've not been brought to the palace just to experience all that extravagance, to have that amazing wardrobe, to have all those precious gems, to wear those exotic fragrances. And you're not there just to be the most desirable and attractive woman in the kingdom. You've been brought here by God as part of a plan to sustain the Jewish nation so that the Messiah could be born through that nation. So Esther has to make a decision. And it's not something that she can do alone. She realizes that she's got to get God involved in all of this. So she sends this message back to her cousin. So we're now in chapter 4, verse 16. In preparation for my audience with the king, do this. Gather together all the Jews in Susa and fast and pray for me. Intercede for me. For three days and nights abstain from all food and drink. My maids and I will join you in this time. And after the three days, I will go into the king and plead my people's case, even though it means breaking the law. And if I die... I die. Yes, like she's made the right decision. And, and this isn't, you know, if I do this, my friends are going to shun me, or if I do this, then I might not get that job promotion. But she realizes that this is life or death. And she realizes that God has placed her in this position to intercede for his people. So she's not just beautiful on the outside, but she's beautiful on the inside. She's full of wisdom. She's full of understanding. And she invited God into that process. And what's the first thing you do when you face pressure? Usually we don't fast and pray. For many people, they turn to things like a bottle. Or for others, they get angry. For others, they just work longer hours. For others, they just kind of spend money. For others, they just hold up in their house. Look at what Peter said in chapter 5, verse 7. Since God cares for you, let him carry all your burdens and worries. Like, why do we try to carry those on our own? Esther was wise to do just that. She allowed God to carry those burdens. She got all her people to join with her in fasting and prayer in preparation for decision that she would make. So after the time of prayer and fasting, Esther, Ethel, Ethel, Esther takes that bold step of faith and she goes uninvited to King Xerxes. So just imagine, she's standing there in front of his door, the door opens and she's eye to eye with the king and she's just waiting there smiling to see if he is going to accept her or not. But he raises his royal scepter, and that was a signal to say that she could enter into his presence. And that was also a signal that God was involved in all of this. And then he even asks her, you know, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Like, what is it that you want? And she starts out small at first, and she said, okay, how about just a small private bank between you, myself, and Haman this evening. And he says, no problem, it's done. So in the next 36 hours, you're going to see some amazing things happen. Because at that banquet, Esther didn't feel just right about bringing what 
Maybe it was God speaking through her. We don't know. But she didn't bring up what she wanted. So she asks if the three of them can get together again that next night. And Haman, he's stoked. He thinks, all right, I get to be alone with the king and the queen for dinner once again. But when he goes home, he doesn't stay stoked very long. He's so angry with Mordecai and the Jews that he can't wait for the extermination day in order to wipe them out. He wants Mordecai killed right away. So he goes up to his workers and he said, Look, tonight and tomorrow I want you to build a 75-foot gallows in my yard so that I can kill Mordecai the Jew on top of it. I will ask the king tomorrow night and get permission to do it. But God begins to unfold his plan through the insomnia of the king. Because the king, he can't sleep, so he actually asks one of his handlers to bring his animals to him. Now that would be similar to a combination of sleeping pills and a really boring sermon. And he figures, you know, it's like reading the minutes of meetings. They're boring. And I'm sure he's thinking, well, these will be read to me for a few minutes, and I'll be fast asleep. But his guy goes all the way back four years, and the attendant starts to read about the assassination plot to kill King Xerxes. And instead of falling asleep, he's wide awake. Somebody tried to kill me? Who foiled this plot? And... They said, well, Mordecai. And was the man ever honored? Not yet. And the king said, he will be tomorrow. So the next morning is the day of the second banquet, and also the day that Haman is going to ask if he can kill Mordecai. And remember, he still has no idea that Queen Esther and Mordecai are related. And Xerxes, he's all excited because he can't wait for Haman to come into the office. So Haman walks in and... The king says, Haman, what should the king do if he really wants to honor someone in his kingdom? And Haman, who's so stuck on himself, thinks, the king's talking about me. The king's going to honor me. So in his most humble voice, he says, uh, if the king was to honor someone, I would have them placed on top of the royal horse that belongs to the king. I would have them clothed in something that the king had worn. Then I would have a worker lead that horse throughout the whole city, yelling at the top of his lungs, This is what the king wants to do for the man with whom he is pleased. And he finishes, and he looks at the king, and the king says, Great, I want you to do that for Mordecai the Jew. And then Haman starts twitching. How many have watched the Pink Panther movies? And the lieutenant, like every time Chief Inspector Cluso did something about that, they would twitch, I'm sure. That's what was going on in Haman's face when he heard the king say that. And then the king said, And I want you to be the one to lead the horse throughout the city, telling people that I am honoring this man. So on the day that Mordecai was going to be killed, he, he, Haman actually has to go around and honor him all throughout the city. So after that day of humiliation, he has just enough time get back home, get changed, and get to the banquet that he has, this private banquet with the king and the queen. And he thinks, I'm finally going to get my chance to get permission to put Mordecai to death. So Esther and Xerxes 
are seated there as he entered. The stage is set. And the king asks, okay, Esther, what is your request? So now we're in chapter 7, verse 3. Esther answered, Your Majesty, if you really care for me and are willing to help, you can save me and my people. That's what I really want. Because a reward has been promised to anyone who kills my people, Your Majesty. If we were merely going to be sold as slaves, I would not have bothered you. Who would dare do such a thing? The king asked. And Esther replied, That evil Haman is the one out to get us. So Haman was terrified as he looked at the king and queen. And the king was so angry that he got up, left his wine, and there must be some significance to that, God must have drank a lot, and went out into the palace garden. Haman realized that the king had already decided what to do with him. And he stayed, and he begged Esther to save his life. So about the time that the king kind of gets himself together under control and comes back into the room is the time when Haman goes over to throw himself at Esther's feet and plead for his life. But as he's going toward her, he trips, probably over one of those Persian rugs, and he lands right on top of her. So as the king comes in, there is Haman on top of his wife. So he says, you, I can't believe this. Will you even molest the queen while she is with me in this house? And as soon as those words came out of his mouth, the king's bodyguards came in and they covered Haman's head, which was a nice way of saying, you're dead, buddy. <laughs> and then Harbana, one of the king's attendants, steps up and he said, King, I hate to interrupt, but I walk by Haman's house on my way to the office every day. And when I was coming in here this morning, I could see in his front yard this 75-foot gallows. And I spoke to the workers, and they said, this is being built to kill Mordecai on. So it's just kind of sitting there empty. And then the king takes the hint, and he said, take Haman and end his life on those gallows. Like, what an unbelievable turn of events. But it's not unbelievable when we know the author of the story. Now, I need to make some observations, but the story took too long. So, it's going to be short. Look for opportunities. But Esther looked for opportunities. Mordecai looked for opportunities. Be cognizant of the people that God brings into your life, into your neighborhood, into your workplace. Look for opportunities. And then invite God into the process. But Esther chose to do that. She knew that this was beyond anything she could do on her own. So through prayer and fasting, God was invited in. She knows that she doesn't control things, but she knows that she can go to the higher power who does. So make sure you go to that higher power as well. And then have the courage to speak up. In Matthew 10, 32, If you tell others you belong to me, I will tell my Father in heaven that you are my followers. Have the courage to take a stand. Here were a couple of people who were nobodies. Like Esther was an orphan. Mordecai was just an ordinary Jew in that country. But God was able to do amazing things with them. Because he specializes in taking the ordinary people in this world and bringing glory to himself out of it. Now, some of you may look at your life and feel defeated. 
It might be your career. It might be your marriage. It, it could be your kids. It could be your health. It, it could be your moral character. Don't accept defeat. Don't give up. God hasn't abandoned you. The story ends with Haman being put to death and King Xerxes actually promoting Mordecai to prime minister and chief advisor to the king. In the lower story, all of this happens because of an ace who challenged a queen to confront the king. That's what happened. An ace challenged a queen to confront the king. But in the upper story, the Jewish nation is saved because of a king, the king of kings, who worked upstream. He unfolded his plan, even though in this book he's not mentioned even one time. Throughout that whole book, we can see his involvement, and he brings salvation to that group of people. So even when the cards are stacked against you, let God step in and play his hand. Esther 8.16 For the Jews, it was a time of celebration. Darkness had turned to light, sadness to joy, shame to honor. So God went to great lengths to save this nation of people. And he did the same thing to give us the opportunity to have salvation. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now. And every time that we do, this is a reminder to us of the great lengths that God went to in order to ensure our salvation. He created us. He had the wish that we would live perfect lives. But in his foreknowledge, he knew it wasn't going to happen. And he had his plan ready to go into effect. And then the Bible tells us when the time was just right. And we're just about to end the Old Testament portion of the story. And then there's going to be 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist appears. And then very shortly after that, Jesus is on the scene. So after that silence, 